it well to center field. Deion Sanders going back to the wall, and it is gone. Bo Jackson over. Thank you for downloading and or streaming the newest episode of Infinity Sports. This is our third episode under the moniker, and things are going pretty good. I am excited about the direction of the show, and I think that we're still putting out the best content possible. In fact, it gets better every show. What do you guys think? Well, actually, when I say you guys, I'm here. I'm Wayne G. I'm here with Jesse B. and Dan Sully Sullivan. How's it going, guys? Hello, folks, and hello, Wayne. Hey, how we doing, guys? How we doing? So how do you guys feel about the new moniker, and have we stepped up our game since changing, or what do you guys think? Absolutely. I think that we are bringing you better content. I think that also has to do with the amount of sports that are being provided to us outside now, the things that are loosening up and and being planned out as far as different professional leagues. But yeah, we are certainly stepping up our game. Some of us are getting more involved in the blog game. I know that I did a rival blog with you, Wayne, regarding basketball characters from movies, and I think there are rumblings about Dan probably stepping in and doing one with you. Sully, is there any truth to that? There is a little truth to that. I think me and Wayne are going to tackle the football side of things on that side of the draft and see what we can come with there. And You know, I read your basketball one. I think it's great. You guys did an awesome job. It's, that one's a really interesting read, a really good, fun read. Any of those opinion-based drafts and things like that where they're character-based, I mean, it's just it's a lot of fun. So make sure you guys go check that out on rtfsportsnetwork.com. It was definitely a fun opportunity to be able to put pen to paper and go against Wayne in a fun draft that I knew was going to include Hollywood because Wayne loves his movies. So this was a fun experience for me, and I hope that it's the first of many for blogs. And Sully, I'm really looking forward to the one that you get to do with Wayne. Now, if you're listening, you're probably either streaming us on one of the major services, you've downloaded us, listening in your car, listening on your iPad or iPod, or however you normally listen to podcasts, or maybe you're listening to us Wednesday nights at 9 o'clock on the RTF network. RTF has us on there. Sometimes they have us on there twice a week. It happens once in a while, but hopefully you're checking us out on all those platforms, and RTF is where you can find those blogs from me, Jesse, a bunch of other writers, and we definitely hope you guys check out all those blogs, listen to the other shows on RTF, and help us grow the station as well as our show. We don't like to get into politics. We try to steer as far away from it as possible. But I think that we would be remiss if we did not start off the show with the news about Drew Brees. It's kind of the biggest news in sports right now. And obviously, in a 24-hour news cycle, that's something that can change within seconds. But for right now, Drew Brees asked if he's going to kneel, if his teammates kneel for the National Anthem. And he went off this whole thing about how he's not going to disrespect the flag. His grandfather was in World War II or whatever it was, served in the Army. I don't think his dad or somebody serve in the army and to his credit drew Brees has always been very very pro-military so he's still walking that line but he stepped in it considering everything that's going on in the country and just got ringed into having to give an apology and i think he should give an apology not necessarily because of the whole politics of it but i think that drew Brees made a mistake by not going to the bill belichick school of answering tough questions when you get a tough question like that you dance around it I think he was trying to go for the home run saying America, and he ended up stepping in it. If he had just danced around it and avoided it completely, he would have been fine. Yeah, and in a season that could have been Drew Brees' send-off, 
In last episode, I chose him to be my MVP for this upcoming season and win the Super Bowl. And I definitely feel like I need to rescind those picks. That's not the direction I'd like to go in. This guy, when he's got majority of the country united in one area and he decides he wants to step in that other direction, not the time nor the place. So I think it's know your audience when you're thinking about what he's talking about. And again, uh, not my MVP and not my Super Bowl champions anymore. Oh, man. I don't know. I think I'd even take him more for the MVP right now. I mean, this is going to light a fire under his ass, I think. And honestly, it could unify the team more than I think it hurts the team because I, I, I understand what Drew Brees said. I understand why he said the things he said. At the same time, I think the timing of what he said is just awful. You can't say it right now, especially with, with the issues that are going on everywhere. You know, he's quoted directly saying, I will never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. And he truly believes that kneeling during that national anthem is disrespecting the country. That doesn't mean he disagrees with what Colin Kaepernick or what the, the protest stands for or anything like that. Now, again, the timing is terrible, and he needed to come back and apologize and kind of just set the record straight. From the sounds of it, Demario Davis came out and had a good quote to say that it takes a man to do what he did and things like that, and I think his team will rally behind him. I think his teammates know what truly what kind of man he is, and both of his grandfathers served, so the flag and the national anthem just means something different to him. And why is it so wrong for the man to feel that way? I don't think it is, but at the same time, he needs to be sensitive with what's going on, and I don't think he was. Again, I think the key words there are know your audience and knowing the climate of what's going on right now. And he can feel what he wants, but different sports individuals like him and franchises, they have PR teams for a reason. Just don't hit submit, my man. There's really no taking that away. And again, in a year that could have been a wonderful send-off for him and a surefire Hall of Fame career, this really puts a, uh, a damper on things. And like you said, Sully, it certainly could be temporary. But I do want to let it be known, he did apologize via Instagram today. And Wayne, I, how do you feel about a guy that apologizes within 24 hours of having a take like that? I feel like he listened to his publicist and he listened to people around him who told him he had to do it. I don't think he's actually sorry. I think that he knows that it's the thing to do for his career. And like you said, it's just Mars, his potentially last season, which was looking like it was going to be standing ovations at every stadium and tons of love. And that's all gone now. There's so much hate towards him. And I don't think it's justified. I really don't. But I do think that he shouldn't have said what he said, given the climate. Like I said, Tom Brady would never say something like that because he's so good at stepping around the question. If you ask Tom Brady, Tom, are you going to kneel with your teammates if they kneel during the national anthem? He'd say, hey, guys, listen, the season's a long way away. I haven't had a chance to look at the playbook. I haven't had a chance to talk to the coaches, let alone talk to my teammates about what we're going to do during the anthem or before the game. Just totally go right around it. Yeah, there are certainly ways to dodge those types of situations and the hot button topics that are surrounding the nation right now. Sully, you mentioned that you don't think that it's going to have as bad of an effect on the team and with his teammates. I honestly feel like it will. You know, he's got a lot of teammates that could really take offense to what happened and not buy his apology 24 hours later. Like Wayne said, it could come off insincere. So do you really think his teammates are going to band together and help him rally this year? I mean, like I mentioned, Demario Davis has already come out and publicly stated how he supports Drew Brees and, and how like this is the true sign of a leader. Michael Thomas has come out and said he accepts his brother's apology and, you know, now back to the movement. You know what I mean? Because 
again, I, th- I think most people don't want to take focus off of what is really important here, and that is the movement and, and moving forward and eliminating this systematic racism and eliminating these things that are, are essentially holding these young people back. And was this quote misplaced? Yes, I think it was. And I think his teammates understand that and know him and know the man. I think his community understands that and knows the man. Drew Brees has done a ton for the community in New Orleans and has done a ton for the fans there. And I don't know. I don't think that just is is gone overnight for this guy. I really don't. Still a first ballot Hall of Famer? Yeah, of course. The thing that really kind of bothered me about it is that, like I said, Drew Brees, I think five, six years ago, or however long ago it was when the Colin Kaepernick thing was going on, took the exact same stance, shouted America, and said, you know, soldiers, and everybody rallied behind him. That was the right answer at the time. That was the popular answer at the time. And I think that he tried to double dip because, like Jesse said, didn't know his audience, thought he was going to get the same standing ovation for the same answer. And I think that's unfortunate that he didn't recognize either dance around it or lie. Because I believe that's how he feels. I believe he said what he feels, and whether he apologized or not, he's not sorry for how he feels, and he shouldn't be, because, you know, be a man. You feel how you feel. Don't apologize for it. But I think that he just made a mistake by answering the question honestly and trying to get that second home run. He should have just taken the walk. I think what will end up benefiting Drew Brees and the New Orleans Saints as a whole is the time between this whole incident and when we're actually going to see that team perform on the field in that week one matchup against Sully's Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah, I mean, he comes out and he states that he apologized, that he lacked awareness, and I think that is kind of the main thing here. It just wasn't on point. He just... Like we've all mentioned, the timing was awful. Know your audience. I don't mind owning your truth. And and like you said, he felt that way then and he feels that way now. And through all that time, I know he supported that community a ton. So again, it's not that he doesn't support the movement. It's just he doesn't support the way Colin Kaepernick protested. Again, though, you just can't comment it like that in this kind of situation. Like you said, the pros dance around that kind of shit. I think it will, like Jesse said, completely disappear by the time the season starts, by the time we get to week one with the Tampa Bay, because like I said, it's a 24-hour news cycle. So day one was him saying that, the feedback or the reaction. Day two is him apologizing. Day three is people kind of getting over it. And by the time we get to the season, there's going to be 17 other controversies that come up and nobody's going to really remember the whole Drew Brees thing. They might bring it up that first week, but then it'll go away. You won't hear about it again. Time heals all wounds, and I think that, unfortunately, in this country, there's going to be way too many situations for this country to talk about that are going to move us past this Drew Brees situation. Yeah, I'm up here in Tallahassee, and I don't know if you have guys heard, but their head coach now, Mike Norville, came out and stated that he talked to each of his players individually, and they had this one-on-one conversation, and now their star defensive lineman, Marvin Jones, has come out and said, look, none of this shit happened. And they're holding like a mutiny. They're said they're not showing up or doing anything until this gets solved. And he called them out. And so I, I think more like, you know, when that gets reported, if that goes further, like you said, just more things will come up and this will end up getting buried because it's beyond it's, you know, it's, it's kind of done. It's in the past now. The other big news, or I guess big news that's coming out, is that sports are kind of back. We've got the NHL is coming out with a playoff. The NBA voted 29 to 1 to ratify the playoff thing. The one team that did not like it was the Portland Trailblazers because they're not going to be in it. But basically, we've got 22 teams. It's basically the top 16 teams and then anybody who was within six games of the eighth seed when, you know, the coronavirus stopped play. 
Jesse's conspiracy theory, and we'll let him talk about it, is that it was a way to get Zion Williamson into the playoffs and drive up ratings. That's the only reason they went with six games out of eight versus four games out of eight. It's because you got to get the Pelicans in the playoffs. Right, Jesse? Oh, absolutely. When you talk about risk versus reward, the reward to them is having more teams and being able to garner more money and more exposure for their next superstar, Zion Williamson, who was several games out of the playoffs, or at least his New Orleans Pelicans teams was farther out of the playoffs than three or four teams ahead of him. So the fact that they've added this many teams to the format, we're now at 24. When we spoke about the different formats, we kind of laughed at the 30-team format. And looking at this one at 24, when I speak about risk, we're talking about 24 different teams being included. That's way more than ever before that are all going to be in a small area in Orlando. And we're just going to believe that nothing's going to go wrong. I mean, what happens when one player gets sick or two players get sick? Are we just going to start eliminating teams? Are we going to delay this any further? I mean, Wayne was just talking about this, how we're going to have practically no offseason for these players. And now we have no idea what could happen if a case of COVID-19 happens to surprise any one team or player. Yeah, well, to start, Portland's actually in this, Wayne. They're actually the nine seed, so I'm not really sure why they were against it. I, it may be because Damian Lillard has come out and said he's not going to play kind of meaningless games, and maybe this shortened season he feel like is meaningless games and he's not going to want to play. I'm not really sure. There's also that rule where if the nine seed's within four games of the eight seed, then they do a play-in game, and that's if the eight seed wins one game, they're in, but the nine seed has to beat the eight seed twice. So I don't know. It seems all kind of muddled together, but I don't think we were going to get anything perfect. And I'm just glad we got something good and we're about to get some NBA. I do agree it may turn into a clusterfuck, Jesse, if this one case of COVID does hit and spreads and things like that. But I mean, at the same time, these are things that they're 100% have planned for. They have contingency plans for. I'm sure these players are somewhat, you know, sealed off and there's tests every day and things like that. So I'm hoping the NBA can kind of get this together because at this point, I think we're all really excited to see basketball and just to see sports again. I'm really glad that you actually touched on that eight versus nine matchup that could potentially happen, Sully, because the Memphis Grizzlies, who came into this abruptly stopped NBA season with a for sure playoff spot and with the remaining games, they had the toughest remaining schedule of these teams. So they do have a benefit of already securing their spot where, like you said, if they win one game, then they get to move on into that next phase of the NBA playoff format. I wanted to ask you guys, both on this format and the NHL format, because I think it's relevant in both, COVID-19 has really removed home court or home ice, home field advantage. I wanted to ask you guys what you felt about that. Is it meaningless? Is there something to that? It's not meaningless. I think that there's certain places that you play that it is an absolute home field or home court or home ice advantage. In football, you've got Arrowhead Stadium, you've got Seattle where they get so loud you can't hear yourself. I think there are some NHL stadiums like that. It just gets ridiculously loud. With basketball, Golden State's not in it, but Arco Arena is thunderous. Uh, Oklahoma City, very loud. So they do have that advantage. But at the same time, I also think that given the situation, not having fans, I guess, is the most neutral way to put it. And in a neutral situation, the best team's going to win. And isn't that kind of what we want anyways? That's why we have a best of five or best of seven is because we want to make sure that the best team wins. It's not a fluke. Yeah, I actually agree with Wayne. And obviously, I think home field advantage is a real thing and it matters but in this instance I think it's going to be something really cool it's not going to matter here obviously you know so I don't think seeding is going to matter as much because it's not like they're getting to play at home if they're the one seed or two seed or things like that 
It's more about matchups and where who you want to play with. So I actually think we may see a little more like strategic losing and things like that. But I don't know. I'm really excited for it. I just want to get it back. I'm really interested to see where they go with this schedule. You mentioned it, Jesse. Memphis had the hardest schedule. Well, now what do they do? They can't just give them the same schedule. Six teams aren't in it now. So what do they do if it, you know with those teams and if they were on the schedule and who do they replace them with and now with the so I think it's going to be a clusterfuck there and how they get the schedule and kind of even it out because what if these teams were already set to play each other and they're still in the tournament do those games just stand I I don't know so I'm really interested to see that Wayne what do you think the biggest advantage of this format is well like I said the biggest advantage is going to be for the fans and for the NBA like you mentioned getting Zion Williamson into the playoffs because that wasn't going to happen in a regular playoff format potentially so now having him he is the big ticket he is the big draw you've got LeBron James and Anthony Davis with the Lakers obviously a big draw but getting him in there is going to drive up revenue just by having him in there so that's the big advantage for the NBA is in terms of revenue in terms of the players I think that the advantage is just playing without fans like I mentioned before because there's not going to be that emotional component to the game. If a guy hits a three-pointer, it's just like playing a pickup game. You run down the other end, there's no emotion in it. Whereas when you play with a crowd, you hit that three-pointer, the crowd erupts, all of a sudden, everybody's got adrenaline pumping. So you're going to be missing that a little bit. It's going to be like watching the NBA Summer League, but with higher shooting percentages. Think of that player that's on your favorite team right now, Wayne. Think of LeBron James. I just totally disagree with what you just said. I think it's going to be such a lack of passion. It's going to be so weird to see a guy like that hit a shot or go down for a tomahawk dunk and not have anybody react. He's just not the type of guy to be able to run down after he does something like that and get right back into a defensive stance. I don't think this generation of stars is the type of crowd that can really perform at their highest level with no fans around them. I feel like it's going to be very awkward it's no surprise to you guys but i am a wrestling fan and i've had to kind of put watching wrestling on on a bit of a hiatus because it's very difficult for me to connect and enjoy wrestling with no fans hearing the uh uh, the the ooze without the ooze and ahs without the thrill of the fans the excitement the booze it is such a different experience that i'm just wondering what type of product we're actually going to get when we get these teams back after such a long time without seeing them no fans it's such a weird mixing pot of new i agree with you sully i'm glad to have it back but it's so different there's so much risk i feel and i'm excited but i'm also fearful that's a really great point jesse i do think a lot of these players do feed off of fans and feed off of that energy however i think a lot of like especially you mentioned lebron i think he's going to be driven to to come out here and win you know i think the veterans will still want to come out and win maybe these younger guys will feel differently but i don't know i feel like a lot of these older guys will still want to come out here and get this championship that they've worked so hard for and count this as a season so Something you both had touched on last episode was that you were really hoping that the NBA went towards that non-conference 16-seed format, and they chose not to go that way. And I really think that was a missed opportunity now that we've had a week to kind of think it over and see what they actually decided to do, because I personally feel that there's no way that Adam Silver and the NBA choose to go with this 22-team format going forward. They really just did a one-year thing, and it really just proves my point that they did it for Zion. They should have done the non-conference 16-team format and kept that going forward i really just feel it was a missed opportunity i would have liked that version better as well and i know that the whole system right now is just kind of confusing you've got 22 teams 13 are west nine are east you've got play-in games you've got if an eight is within four games of a nine and it just seems like the nba board members sat around a table they all put ideas into a hat and adam silver said grab three and combine them 
I really think that what they ended up doing was offending the least amount of teams while trying to benefit the most financially. And I think they proved that with the 29 to 1 vote in the end there. Portland wanted to play if they had something to play for, but they really don't feel that they do. But where you were going with that, Wayne, was I just, it's such a weird format. You know, Phoenix at the very end of that Western Conference, do, do any of us think that they have a legitimate chance at moving on to win? I don't think so. And then on the other side in the East, the Washington Wizards, do I think that they have any legitimate chance? No. So having 22 teams in, it's, it's more risk than the 20 teams. And those last two teams have absolutely no chance to exceed in the playoffs, in my opinion. And so it's really just for financial gain. Yeah, I don't understand to not do the overall 16 seeds and to split it in conferences, but then bring back five more Western Conference teams than Eastern Conference teams. Like, what? So, like, the nine seed in the East, Washington, literally, all they have to do is be within four games at the end of it, and they're essentially within a play-in game. So, they don't even really have to try to make it to the eight seed. They just have to not be with it, because there's no other team. They are literally the last nine seed. So, it's like, what the f- It makes no fucking sense. I don't know. They just should have done straight 16, and then if the nine seed was there, fine, whatever, or if the 17 seed and the 16 seed were close enough, then you have a playing game. Otherwise, just let it fucking ride. I, I, I think it was a, a mess there. I really do. I'm glad you brought up the East Sully because when we first thought about that 16-team non-conference format, my biggest worry was for the Milwaukee Bucks specifically because of the gauntlet that they would have had to face. And now I feel like they have a much easier run to the NBA Finals than they did in any other format that we had discussed. And I think that the Lakers still have an easy opportunity to get to the NBA Finals. So no matter what format they were going to fall on, that was still going to be my NBA Finals. I'm going to make a prediction that the games on the floor are going to be far more intense without fans. And the reason for that is having grown up playing basketball, organized basketball, street basketball, I can tell you that I played high school basketball and we played in some ruckus gyms that were really loud and it was fun. I loved being on the floor. I loved the crowd getting into it. I loved knocking down a shot and everybody goes bananas. It was so much fun. But when I play pickup basketball outside with no fans, it is so heated and so intense because there's no fun there. It's just about winning. It's not about impressing the fans. It's just about winning. And I expect we're going to see a lot of fights because that's what it's going to be, just super intense. That's a great point, Wayne. The game's going to be strictly about winning and not about showing off and shit like that. So that's a really great point. I can't wait to see fucking basketball. Let's go! So before we end our NBA talk, I do want to make sure that we check in with the Adam Schefter of the NBA, and that is Adrian Wojnarowski of the ESPN Network, and just checking his Twitter timeline, and he's got some preliminary expectations for the Orlando format, and he mentions that it is going to be a 16-day regular season. There's going to be five to six games every day, and that each team can be expected to play at least one back-to-back game amongst those eight regular season games that they have to play. The NBA Finals format is expected to include games every other day. So I think that's something that the fans can really look forward to is every other night having an awesome matchup to look forward to. Yeah, no travel time. So put more games on TV. Yeah, I think five to six games a day is going to be really fun for the fans to watch and look forward to, especially with the lack of sports we've had. So with this and the NHL upcoming, it's very fun for us to have these to talk about and eventually see again. The NHL is starting its playoff, and there's still some uncertainty about where the games are going to take place, but we do know it's going to be 24 teams. There's going to be eight teams that get a bye, and then there's going to be eight 
playoffs into the playoffs, basically. So one through eight are all going to get a bye, and then the other 16 teams are playing to get in. And I'm curious, I don't really watch a whole lot of hockey, so I'm not going to try to pretend to be any sort of expert or anything like that, but it's kind of an interesting concept that you've got basically eight teams getting in and probably eight other teams that would have been guaranteed to get in if they had a regular playoff that now have to play for their life. I believe the NBA was taking a risky approach in having 22 of their 30 teams involved in their playoff format, and I called them out for financial reasons. And here we are with 24 of the 30 NHL teams being included. Gary Bettman just trying to make them buku bucks, man. I think this is exciting because NHL is one of the most exciting things that you can watch, both live and on TV. But I'm going to go ahead and defer some of this to Sully because I know that he is not only our draft expert, but he is our NHL expert. Expert's a far word for me. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I do watch a lot of Tampa Bay Lightning hockey, so I can give you an expert take there. But from what I gather with this is, along with the eight playoff games to play in, the eight teams that have the quote-unquote buy are going to play for a reseed too. So we're going to get to see a lot of really good hockey. And then after that, each round is then reseeded beyond that. So I think that's going to be a bigger advantage to these top teams. You know, we're going to get to see the best teams, I think, make it the furthest. And having said that, I fully expect Tampa to go really far. You know, I think Boston's going to go very far. A lot of these teams are getting a lot of these players back. So I think it'll be really interesting. Some of these first-round matchups are going to be a lot of fun. So I'm really excited for NHL hockey to be back. I mean, the Oilers and the Blackhawks in the first round is going to be a super fun series to watch. You've got the dynasty that was with the Blackhawks. And now all these vets have had, God, two months off to rest and all this time to heal and and they're going to come back 100% and then you got the Oilers with the two young guys and Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisettle who are arguably the two best tandem we've seen in a really 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 long time both of these guys put up 100 points this season Connor McDavid got 97 but you know let's be real they both would have eclipsed 100 if the season finished Leon Dreisettle was leading the league in points at the time it ended so I mean both these guys can score with the best of I, I, I you know I'm just really excited for NHL to be I don't love the idea in any playoff format of reseeding because in a playoff where you have 16 teams, the winner of the 1-8 plays the winner of the 4-5. But with reseeding, you could have the winner of the 1-8 be the 1, and then the winner of 12-2 or whatever is 12, they have an upset. So now the 12 team plays the 1 team. It's basically giving the 1 seed the, the easiest path possible to the finals. I think this is the NHL's response to not having any regular season games still be played. They're going to have that round-robin tournament for the top four seeds in each conference be able to really decide how they're going to be reseeded while we're seeing those other teams play a best-of-five just for their chance to play in that next round. Well, like I mentioned before... I think they're setting this up for their best teams to make it the furthest. And while that may not be ideal for a lot of situations, I think that's ideal for them here because they want the best matchups and they want their most stars going on. And they're going to get that with the reseeding. And I think that was their thought process behind it. And I don't hate it. I really don't. I understand because I'm kind of with you. I'd, I'd like to see kind of standard format, but at the same time, I love trying new shit and just seeing if it works. And this is a time to try new things. So I like what they're doing. Sully, like where the NBA had an opportunity to go to a new playoff format and potentially stick with it, do you think this format that the NHL and Gary Bettman went with has any potential to stick, or is this a one-hit just due to the pandemic and next year we're going back to that same format that we've been accustomed to? 
Yeah, I would expect them to go back to what they were doing. I just don't see any way they could continue something like this. I mean, who knows? We'll see. Like, if hockey fans love it and this is something they love, hockey may adjust, but I highly, highly doubt that. They're so driven into what they do. It's a business, so ultimately money talks. So basically, if this playoff format makes more money than last year's playoff format, I would expect them to try it for second year. That's the thing. If this, if fans absolutely love the way this is done, and, and they just might, because honestly, this is insanely entertaining, I think. I think they kind of did the right way to bring this back. It's it's almost like a, I know it's not an NCAA tournament, but it kind of feels that way, and more so than the NBA does, just because 24 out of 30 teams are in, and like, I don't know. It just seems that way to me, and, and I think that's just a lot more fun. It just feels more fun, and if it makes a ton of money too, then they very well may change. Yeah, Sully, do you happen to know where any of these potential spots may be for the NHL playoffs? Well, they've announced a couple, and they've, I guess, kind of narrowed their search down to Chicago, Columbus, Dallas, Edmonton, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Pittsburgh, Toronto, and Vancouver. And there's going to be one Eastern Conference hub and one Western Conference hub. I think it's safe to kind of uh, maybe remove Minneapolis from that list. They Actually, they may decide to put it there and maybe turn things around. Who knows? Uh, I'm not really sure. But I think that kind of gives a distinct advantage to some teams, like the Chicago's, if it ends up there. I mean, that's a team based on familiarity. Like, if they can go into a locker room, they know they're vets. Like that, I mean, that could be huge for them. A team like Las Vegas, again, a new team that like, going in, just anywhere that's familiar, that's already a good ball club, I think it's going to be a distinct advantage honestly i think what's fascinating about this 2014 proposal is you touched on chicago and their most recent opportunities to win championships stanley cups and have a dynasty and they're the 12th ranked team here and you give them some potential to win whereas on the other side of the bracket that 12th seeded montreal canadians they have no reason to be in this format at all they've got no place in the playoffs No, they really don't. And I mean, they're the kid that shows up to the baseball league and you got to get him his one at bat and his three defensive outs. And then he just sits on the bench again. And that's them. They're going to get pretty handily beat by the Penguins. They really kind of lucked out with this 2014 format. You know, I don't think they could even consider themselves in the playoffs. I don't know because it's a round robin, but I don't know. Like They're going to claim it. They're going to claim they made the playoffs. That's for sure. Well, it's a team that rides its history as best as possible. They remind me, actually, uh, we talked about blogs. I did the one with uh, Jack Elliott from Mr. Baseball. And there's a scene in the beginning of the movie where he's they're telling him that they're going to cut him. And he says, I'm a World Series MVP. They go, that was four years ago, Jack. <laughs> and that's the, that's the Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> oh, it 100% is, man. Living in the Larry Robinson days. So, Sully, looking at the play-in bracket, do you see any other teams out there that have any potential to make it to the Stanley Cup playoffs, or to the championship round and win? I mean, the championship round, I mean, that's tough. I mean, the Oilers, I think the five seed got a real shot. I mean, there's just so much talent on that team that who knows? I mean, they very well could. The Preds have a a decent chance. The Hurricanes got some talent coming back. Dougie Hamilton's coming back from injury, so you never know. And then obviously the Penguins out there can can make a run at it. And those are just the guys that got to obviously play in to get in there. But I think the Big Eight are really going to be tough to beat. I really do. I mean, I think the Avalanche are a very good team. I think the Golden Knights are a very good team. Obviously, we mentioned the Bruins and the Lightning and the Capitals. I think those group of eight, I think, are a really, really solid group and are going to be tough to beat. But if I had to put my money on anyone outside of there, you know, honestly, fuck it. I'd go the Oilers just because they're just so talented. But, I mean, they don't have enough defense, but they're just so talented. 
Yeah, those youngsters are absolutely fun to watch. And who do you have your Tampa Bay Lightning beating in the Stanley Cup Finals, Sully? I mean, honestly, I think the Avalanche are a really, really, really good hockey team. I think they're going to be tough to beat. I really do like what they're doing with Nate McKinnon and Gabriel Landeshog there and, and just kind of the culture that he's bringing to that team. I think he's really stepped up and become that elite kind of player that we always thought he was going to be. So I think it may be their time. I'm going to lean the Avalanche and the Lightning. You know, but the Lightning got a road, man. They got a really tough road. They got to get through your Bruins, who are a really, really, really good hockey team. And they got some guys coming back healthy too. So, you know, it's going to be a tough series. That's for sure if they got to play each other. I'm going to go ahead and choose my Boston Bruins to defeat the Las Vegas Knights, but that's only if these playoffs aren't held in Las Vegas. If so, that is an advantage unlike any other. Like I said, I don't know a whole lot about hockey, but I do know that in my experience watching highlights from playoff hockey, the thing that seems to be truth is that it seems to be the sport that the regular season matters the least when it comes playoff time because an eight seed can win the whole thing because when it comes to the NHL playoffs it's whoever's goalie is the hottest is who's going to win you absolutely stole my thunder Wayne I wanted to bring that up because uh, coming into this format where you can be discussing rust versus rest and goalies meaning so much in the NHL playoffs I really do want to see how some of these teams you know, if there's a team on the outside here, like the Chicago, like Montreal, like Pittsburgh, whoever has an, a hot goalie is going to make a serious run in the NHL playoffs. And we talk about the important positions in each sport and quarterback is the most important in football. Goalie is absolutely the most important position in the NHL. And it's even more so once you hit the playoffs. I mean, I 100% agree. It's, you know, that's why I'm such a huge fan of, of the Lightning, obviously. You know, I think Vasilevsky's the best goalie in the league. But Tuka Rask was obviously on a tear right before the season ended. And, I mean, there's a lot of good goaltenders, and you're right. Whichever one catches fire at the right time is more than likely going to dominate the series. And that's just the way hockey goes. So, But it, it's going to be a really exciting format and really exciting time with both the NBA and the NHL going to be going at the same time. I'm, I'm so, so, so excited. Wayne didn't give a prediction, but because I know this man so, so well, he's going to choose the 12th ranked Chicago Blackhawks to go against the 12th ranked Montreal Canadiens because this boy loves to see teams that shouldn't be involved making it to the end. I actually like to see teams that people hate win it all, so I'm rooting for the Penguins. Giving Sid the Kid another Stanley Cup, huh? Last episode, we had Brandon Combs on. He's a blogger for the RTF Sports Network, and he had mentioned that Nomar Garciaparra is the best player ever to wear number five. Our show unanimously disagreed with that sentiment. We brought him on to defend himself, and props to him for coming on and actually doing that. But his article of the best players to wear certain jersey numbers sparked a debate amongst the show staff here, and that is he picked Mariano Rivera as the best number 42 of all time over Jackie Robinson. Now, Jackie Robinson did have quite an impact on the game, but it's not the most impactful players to wear 42. It's the best players. And I told Brandon before he even posted the story that Mariano Rivera was the correct choice. And I feel like Dan kind of agreed with that, but we have a disagreement about positions. I don't agree with the take either. And we do have a disagreement about positions, but I think Jackie Robinson deserves to be the best number 42 ever. I think his impact with baseball goes far beyond just the number and what he did in his barriers. He was also a top five second baseman of all time. And to me, a top five second baseman of all time is better than the best closer of all time. 
And this is really where the conversation got started because I believe that closer is a more valuable position to the game of baseball than second base is. Even though I understand that Dan's going to talk about everyday play and how the second baseman is playing every day while the closer may only get 45 to 50 to maybe even 60 on the high end opportunities to close a game. Those are such impactful moments. I mean, 60 games, teams make the playoffs winning their division by three games. And this is a guy who has an impact on 50 of those. So the second baseman could go 0 for 4 all 50 of those games and they still win because the closer shut down the other team. <sighs> I mean, so I don't even know. Do I even need to talk at this point, Jesse? He literally just made my entire argument for me. So the closer has an impact for those 50 games. How many games does a second baseman have an impact for? How many? F- Let's call it 162. 162 fucking games the second baseman has an impact for. So while the closer does have a huge impact, and this argument, I think, and at this point, I think you just don't want to concede, but I think you agree with me here that this argument is a lot like the home run argument where 90% of the time, I'm right. You want the best second baseman in baseball. And 90% of the time, you want a home run. Yes, there may be very certain circumstances where you want a different outcome than a home run. And in this circumstances, yes, in playoff baseball, in a game seven, yeah, I'd rather have Mariano Rivera than an elite second baseman. I probably would. You, You probably are backing me into a corner there, and yes, I would. However, for the other 161 games of the fucking season, a second baseman is infinitely more valuable, especially because the argument here is the best second baseman in baseball against the best closer in baseball. So it's not just a run-of-the-mill second baseman, and that's where I think it differs. And if you're going to get elite production from an everyday player, that's infinitely more important than elite production out of a closer. I think that relief pitcher and closer is such a hard position to evaluate because it has evolved so much over time and we continue to see it evolve where over the past couple of seasons in the, the postseason, we've seen relief pitchers go into games in the fourth or fifth or sixth inning. We've seen starting pitchers end up closing games. So it's really hard to peg and evaluate where a closer stands all time. But I do stand with Sully on this and with I feel the majority that the elite second baseman has more of an impact on that team than an elite closer. And I do side with Jackie Robinson should have been chosen over Mariano Rivera and not just for the off the field impact he had for the game and for a generation. Well, the concession that I will make, because Dan just made the concession about, you know, playoff baseball and whatnot. The concession I will make is that nine position players are more valuable than a closer. I will make that concession. But one position player, no matter how good he is, is not more important than the closer. And the reason for that is because there's eight other position players to pick up the slack. There's nobody to pick up the slack for the closer. So you can take, if I'm, listen, if you're talking about the crappiest team, if you're going to put a team out there that's 70 and 90, six or whatever it is. In that team, would I rather have Robinson Cano or Jose Altuve or would I rather have Mariano Rivera? It really doesn't fucking matter because you're going to go 70 and 96 either way. But a team that's going to make the playoffs, a team that's going to make the playoffs has a solid batting order anyways. So even if it's the Houston Astros and you take Altuve out of that lineup and you replace him with Mariano Rivera as a closer, they still got, you know, Bregman. They still got Correa and they're still going to make the playoffs and they're going to need a closer in the playoffs, like you just said. So 
would I rather start a team with a great position player or a great closer? I'd probably go with a great closer because, like I said, if I get the shittiest second baseman that ever played the game, I can still surround him with eight players to pick up the slack. But my closer, if he's not any good, my team's fucked, no matter how good my second baseman is. But that's not true. So my, I guess, opposite coin to that argument is, is if I have the best second baseman in baseball and then I have a supporting cast around him too – I hopefully you want to go into a game never needing your fucking closer at all. That's obviously the object of the game. If you're if you're up five one, you don't even fucking need your closer. He doesn't even come off the bench. So my argument is that if your argument that again because I think variables should stay the same when these arguments happen, if the best second baseman in the game is has his slack picked up by other players, and the worst second baseman in the game has his slack picked up by the best players, then they're going to score more runs with the best second baseman. And so if that's the case, you don't even need the closer. So just fundamentally, you want a position player over a pitcher every single time. It doesn't matter who or what position that player plays. You're going to get more out of him. The best second baseman in baseball, which which I think most of us would consider as Rogers Hornsby, I think there there wouldn't be a ton of argument with that. I mean, you may be able to argue some other guys, but when it, when it comes down to it, it's Rogers Hornsby. And his career war is 127. You want to guess what Mariano Rivera's is? He pitches one inning a night, so I'm going to guess uh, 38. It's 56. Hey, even higher than I thought. So, I, I mean, that's just that that in, in itself is kind of explaining, like, how not unimportant it is, but, like, I mean, just how really unimportant it is to winning baseball games. If you can put a bunch of fucking. T- it's 80 war guys or 60 war guys around a 127 guy. You're going to be better at baseball. It's just plain and simple. You can win a game without a relief pitcher. You can't win a game without a second baseman. I've seen a second baseman Bam. pitch. I've not seen a relief pitcher hit, at least not well. Well, then you haven't watched Bartolo Colon. I know he's a starter, but he can hit. <laughs> <laughs> Big old fat boy gets that belly moving. There's not much you can do. Yeah, Rick Enkiel, the natural. But no, what I'm saying, my point is, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you look at it from the standpoint, on the average, again, because we're not taking ideal situations and what ifs, we're just going to say on the average, how often do you need, you need your second baseman to win the game for you? How many games do you lose if your second baseman doesn't win the game for you? And how many games do you lose if your pitcher doesn't close the game for you? Well, to be fair, it's really tough to, in a vacuum, is your second baseman losing your game? How many games can you afford your second baseman to go 0 and 4? Maybe 20 max, like 30 max, and then you got to think about getting a new second baseman in there that can produce or things like that. And so again, it's more about the volume. I think is where our argument differs. Yes, I think in a a vacuum in a very certain situation, a closer is very important, but you're not using them a lot. And that's like, I think the argument you're devaluing and, and failing to see right here is that five days out of the week, your your closer may not step onto the field, but your second baseman is. And so right there already, he's infinitely more valuable. And that's kind of the basis of my argument. And, and that's where I think it's getting lost. If a second baseman strikes out 10 games in a row, is he going to be replaced? I don't think so. Well, it depends if on the relief pitcher. I, I guess so. But if a relief pitcher blows 10 games in a row, you're probably not going to see him again that season. 
Well, no, and my point is that, like Dan was saying, if you have a good enough offense, ideally, in an ideal world, your closing pitcher will have zero saves for the season because you're going to win every game 5 nothing because your starting pitcher is lights out as well. But we all know that in the world, it's not perfect, and your starting pitching staff sometimes sucks, and the rest of your lineup sometimes sucks. And at the end of the day, you could have a second baseman who literally goes 4 for 5 every single game with three home runs every single game, and you're still going to need a closer to close 30 games a year. Yeah. 30 games. But that's what I'm saying. So the 30 out of 162 games. So what, what, I don't even know that percentage. Let me do that off the click of their top there. So that's like what? Like five, one fifth. So that's like roughly 20% around there. So, tw- so you need them for 20% of your games. And what about the other 80% is kind of, is like my argument, Wayne. That 80 fucking percent of those games, you need a viable second baseman and you don't need an elite closer. You know what I wonder may help Wayne's argument is an MLB team carries one to maybe two people who can play second base at a satisfactory level, whereas MLB teams, they certainly know that relief pitching is certainly necessary in games, so they have more depth at that position. I, I guess I don't know if that really hurts or helps his argument, but that that's just statistic I'm thinking about is MLB teams don't really carry a lot of second basemen, but they seem to carry a bevy of relief pitchers, and those guys get replaced and pulled up from the minor leagues all the time every season. Yeah, there's a reason that the average second baseman makes $4 million a year and the average closer makes $7 million a year. It's because general managers and owners of baseball teams think the way that I do. There's a reason the best second baseman in baseball makes $29 million a year and the best relief pitcher in baseball makes $14 million a year because they think the way I think. If you have the best second baseman, yes. The best position players... Which is what the argument is. You're, the argument is the best second baseman in baseball is is infinitely more valuable than the best closer in no, baseball. My argument That's is the, the position of, of closer is more important than the position of second base. Bro, I will bring up the Facebook message that we had where you said, I will take the best closer in baseball over the best second in baseball. I will. I will. That's my personal preference. But I'm saying that my argument is that the position of closer is more valuable than the position of second base. I personally would rather have the best closer than the best second baseman. But my argument here is that the position itself, closer, is more important than the position itself, second base. What Wayne said is he would prefer to have Mariona Rivera and Jeff Kent than he would have Jackie Robinson and Lee Smith. So he wants one Hall of Famer and one not Hall of Famer over two Hall of Famers. That's Wayne's takes, people. Yeah, I'll take Mariano <laughs> Rivera and me at second base over fucking Jackie Robinson and Lee Smith. Oh, my God. This is where we're at now, people. <laughs> Your Honor, the defense rests. <laughs> exactly. Um, the defense rests, sir. We have placed our case in hand. We feel like we've got a guaranteed conviction at this point. Wayne, you don't lose a lot of arguments, bro. You might have to tuck this one into the L column. Ladies bro. and gentlemen of the jury, do not fall for all the flash and fedango <laughs> that you're seeing over there. Look at the facts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's been a while since we tackled the subject, but we used to have the FBAS-5. Since the name change, we are calling it the Infinity-5, so I will never say FBAS-5 again. This is the last time you're hearing me say it. The Infinity-5, where we're going to talk about a top five something or other. Top five sports movies. Top five girls that we'd love to see nude, which is basically the whole population. But today we're going to talk about the top five sports jerseys we've ever owned. And I thought it was such a cool topic, and I've had a ton that I've owned throughout my life. Some of them really obscure, and I'll get into them. But I figure, since this was Jesse's idea, I'd let him kick it off with one of his top five favorite sports jerseys he's ever owned. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm going to go with the one that's probably the most different from the others here, and I'm going to go with my Pistons throwback jersey. I have a 1978 to 1981 version of a Pistons jersey that is a Ben Wallace, and Ben Wallace is my favorite Piston of all time. He's my second favorite player of all time. He is just a defensive force for Defensive Player of the Year awards. The guy should have won five. Ron Artest robbed him. So he's my favorite basketball player outside of Michael Jordan and wearing this jersey and being able to play in it. You know, I've certainly gotten some sweat on this jersey and some other bodily fluids, but this has been a jersey that uh, has really made me proud as a Pistons fan. Not so much recently, though. I'm a big Ben Wallace fan, so I, I like that, man. I, I, I respected his game a lot, so I, I expected you to have a Ben Wallace jersey. Yeah, I, I think I may have even – I don't know if I've ever seen it. I know that I've seen Jesse in a bunch of different jerseys. I wouldn't be surprised if I've seen the Ben Wallace jersey. I'll jump into mine. I have my favorite jersey I've ever owned. Believe it or not, it wasn't even really a jersey. It was a T-shirt. It was one of those T-shirts that had, like, the team name and the number, and the back had the name and the number on it. And I went on a trip, field trip to Washington, D.C. I was living up in Caribou, Maine. And I went to Washington, D.C. on a field trip. And I got so much money to spend on souvenirs. And I went to the sports memorabilia shop. And I saw it on the wall. I had to have it. And it was a gray T-shirt that had the Chicago White Sox logo in black on the left chest. A number 35. And the back said Thomas 35. Frank Thomas is my all-time favorite player in the world. I wore that shirt as often as you could possibly wear a shirt. I got a hole in the back of it one day. I was flirting with some girl at school. She started to chase me. She reached for me, ripped the whole back of the shirt, got her finger in that hole and ripped the whole thing. And that was the end of my Frank Thomas t-shirt. But that is by far my favorite jersey, if you want to call it, that I've ever owned. Man, R.I.P. to the jersey. Wayne, where did you bury her? R.I.P. to the girl. (laughs) (laughs) First jersey I guess I'll share is, I guess, you know, the, the most obscure and odd one that you guys will think. I don't know if you guys know this. You know, I'm a big soccer fan. It was probably, honestly, the number one sport in my household growing up. My dad coached, and we played a lot. So, And my favorite team is Glory, Glory, Man United, baby. And so my my first jersey is going to be the Manchester United Cristiano Ronaldo Red from back in, I think it was, God, 05. Man, I love that jersey. It's so beautiful, and that, that team was so fantastic. You absolutely cannot go wrong with a Ronaldo jersey. He is probably going to go down as one of the greatest football players, probably the greatest footballers of all time. Yeah, most definitely. The guy's a god. So. so I'll go ahead and give you my second pick here. I am a known New England Patriots fan, but I'm going to give you a jersey of a guy that wasn't here too, too long, but it had a huge impact while he was here. And I'm going to go with my blue 81 Randy Moss jersey. Not that other 81, folks. I'm not going to lie. When you said the blue 81, I was like, Dan, this bro's really going to talk. He's got his out Aaron Hernandez is his favorite jersey. I legit thought you were. I mean, you can't hate on the Moss jersey. I love it. Do great things for your team, so you can't hate on it. Yeah, catching 23 touchdowns that year where Brady broke the record for the time when it was 50 touchdowns that he threw, having 23 of those go to Moss and just the amazing catches that he had against the AFC East was so crazy, and I'm so proud to have a Randy Moss jersey in my collection. Yeah, superstar. Absolute superstar for the Patriots. And I'm sure a bunch of people had the Welker jersey, but yeah, definitely Randy Moss is what made that team what they were. And it was very sad to not see them go 19-0. My next jersey is actually kind of an obscure one. And it doesn't have a name on the back. It's a college jersey. And this goes back to, if you remember, Nike for a long time made those like silkscreen basketball jerseys that the numbers were kind of like dyed in. It wasn't like screen printed. And it was a Michigan number one jersey, like a new school Michigan. And that is Jamal Crawford. 
And it was such a cool jersey for me because I loved Michigan. I loved Jamal Crawford. He only played one year there. So that's the other reason that was so cool is that I have a guy who only played one year of college basketball and I had his Michigan number one jersey. And I always thought about getting the name Crawford on the back, but I never did. It's crazy that you said Michigan jersey and my head immediately went to college football and you brought up a basketball player that I never knew played any time at Michigan. I love me some Jamal Crawford, man. I mean, I didn't know his game at Michigan, but man, he's a he's a lethal in the NBA. That six man of the year award should just be named the Jamal Crawford Award at this point. He's the all time leader in four point plays. Nice. Uh, really? Yep. That's such an obscure stat for you to know. Like only fucking you would know that. <laughs> so my second one, Jesse mentioned, you know, guys who weren't around very long. You know, I got that Sean Taylor, his rookie year. I went and got his jersey the day he got drafted. You know, I was a big Sean Taylor fan. He's probably my favorite NFL player of all time, and I loved it. So I went out and got that 36. Pretty rare. Most people don't have it. He switched to 21, obviously, the year after and played with 21 from there on. But that rookie year with the 36, you know, that jersey means so much to me. I love that thing. Wow. From one revelation to another, I had no idea that Sean Taylor wore any number outside of 21. Is there a reason he made that switch? Why did he originally go with 36? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. He wore 26 in college, and that wasn't available, and, and either was 21. And then the year after, I'm assuming 21 just became available. Yeah, when I think 21 in football, I think Sean Taylor. I think of Deion Sanders. And I think of most defensive backs, when they wear 21, I always think it's an O to Deion Sanders. Yeah, honestly, I think – I'm not exactly sure why. I, I was going to say I think you know he may have been there at the time, honestly. <laughs> Deion, how late was Dion playing till? Didn't he play till he was 56? Uh, he played a long time. Next jersey that I have to share with you guys is one that Wayne actually bought me my second version of this jersey. I did have an original one when I was a teenager. Ended up losing track of that one and I needed a replacement. And it is Michael Jordan's high school Laney jersey. It is a very beautiful yellow, blue, and white jersey. And I have taken so much better care of the second one. But having this nice looking jersey for my favorite player of all time, a jersey that, you know, you see plenty of the Olympic style or the, the Chicago Bulls jerseys or even the North Carolina jerseys, but you very, you see very, very few of his high school jerseys. So that's why I take pride in owning that one. And I have to just give Wayne a shout out for helping me get one back in my, my collection. Yeah, for sure. I think when you said you wanted one, I was like, I know where I can get one. That's pretty cool, man. You two are cute. <laughs> yeah, I think my uh, third jersey, actually, I go into soccer as well. So I played soccer growing up my entire life. Like most kids uh, up in northern Maine, we didn't have football because the season wasn't long enough. So I just played soccer right up through high school until my junior year of high school. And I was a really, really good soccer player. I played midfield. And getting older, I got into the sport watching it. And I'm one of those few people who can watch soccer. And I love it. I get entertained watching it and the skill. And just it is the beautiful game. But I had to have, for years and years and years, I had to have, and it was always too expensive, but I came across one for the right price, a 1998, I think it's 96 or 98, might be 96, World Cup Brazil, Ronaldo number nine jersey. It's the Nike one with kind of like those green stripes down the, like the, the obliques, and then it's got the, the number nine right in the center. And I think that was the World Cup that I think he had two games in that World Cup where he scored four goals. It would be 94 or 98. Okay, 98. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 98 was, yeah, I believe that was, is it the year they won it or? 
I think so. I just remember he was like an absolute monster, and I thought, man, this guy is unbelievable. And it really got me into watching more soccer and watching more highlights of Ronaldo. And I think that when you watch him and just the speed and the strength, and he could handle the ball like it was nobody's business. I think people think of him in the speed and the strength and the powerful kicks, but I felt like he could handle the ball as good as any little guy. I mean, he definitely wasn't a little guy, that's for sure. Uh, Oh, you mean he he could handle the ball as good as any little guy? No, I agree. I mean, we do a lot of uh, soccer drafts in the FBAS, and Ray's one of the big soccer guys, too, and me and him have a, have a very similar opinion on Ronaldo, and we think he's absolutely insanely elite. At their peak, there may not be, like, a better player. He was just insane. I do not, I, I obviously think, you know, other guys are more well-rounded, like, you know, Messi and Ronaldo, the other Ronaldo and things like that, but, dude, Fat Ronaldo was insanely good. That's such a cool jersey. Yeah, very few countries take soccer more seriously than Brazil, so that's a legendary jersey to have. The 98's the year they lost to France, but 94, I think they won it. But either way, my next jersey is one that I just loved. I I had it in high school. I mean, it was just so dope. It was the powder blue LT Chargers jersey. I loved it, man. It was so fly. I don't know if you guys were the same age group or not, but we used to have what were called Jabos these pair of jeans and they used to have like a colored kind of cloth thing through the jean and you could get baby blue and so I'd get the baby blue jabos with the powder blue Ladanian Tomlinson jersey man I was the flyest kid on the block for sure I've never heard of a jean product like that or a pants product like that so I'm gonna say that's just a Florida thing unless Wayne you've heard of that I've never heard of it at all, but I do know that the San Diego Chargers took Ladinian Tomlinson with a fifth overall pick. They actually had the number one pick in that draft, and they traded it. So you talk about great draft moves. They traded down to five with the Atlanta Falcons, who took Michael Vick, and then the Chargers took Ladinian Tomlinson at five, and then in the first pick of the second round, they took Drew Brees. Yeah, I actually remember that draft. It was a, it was a really good draft for them. They had a really, really good front office. Those powder blues are probably my favorite NFL jersey out there, and I'm a New England Patriots fan, and they don't really seem to mix it up with the colors all too often, so to see San Diego have such a drastic change from their other jerseys to this powder blue, it's such a a great jersey to see aesthetically on the screen. The next jersey that I want to share with you guys, I'm going to go ahead and bring up another Jordan jersey, and this one is actually one of the very few gifts that I still hold on to from my ex-wife, and it is a rookie 1984 Michael Jordan jersey where the Chicago's written in cursive. I've always wanted one of those jerseys and I came home from work one day and it was hanging right there and I was so happy to have that in my collection. So it's the 1984 Michael Jordan rookie jersey. Nice. You can't wear it without a gold chain though. Yeah. Well, I've, I've got a lot more chest hair than he does. I look like Austin Powers. Got that chest lettuce coming through. Nice, man. I seen it today in that pic you posted. You had the chest lettuce going through. Nice, bro. Oh, it's that chest throw, baby. Exactly. Uh, no, that's a great jersey. I mean, it's timeless. It's such a beautiful thing to look at. I mean, you, you can't really knock that at all. Mine is an NBA jersey, and it's a Miami Heat Dwayne Wade jersey. And the story behind it, I'm not a huge, huge Dwayne Wade fan, but the story goes that, like Jesse knows, he lived in this apartment complex, and I lived there with my buddy Steve. And me and Steve would play basketball on the basketball court 
next to the apartment complex. And this is goes back to when I was skinny. And I'm going to say I was unstoppable. I'd never met a single defender who could even slow me down. And that's not even exaggeration or pumping my own brakes. Jesse can attest to how unstoppable I was when I was younger and skinnier. But me and my buddy Steve, Steve's about 6'4", 275 pounds. He was always a big guy. And everybody called us Kobe and Shaq. Like, oh, it's Kobe and Shaq showing up to the court. Here comes Kobe and Shaq. So I wanted to get us Kobe and Shaq jerseys for Christmas so that we, when we showed up, we would have Kobe and Shaq jerseys. But he is a diehard Celtics fan. And there's no way he was going to wear a Lakers jersey no matter who it was. So we got Dwayne Wade and Shaq Miami Heat jerseys. Every time I saw Steve at that court, he was wearing a regular red, blue, and white Ben Wallace jersey from the Pistons. So I never saw him in a Lakers jersey. So that would have been shocking to see that. But it, it does sound like a nice story for the Miami version. The, the Miami Vice style, that style that they have just recently, that's the best jersey that's out there in the NBA. Now, before you move on, though, just Jesse, can you just tell the folks how good I was at basketball? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're done tooting your own horn, it was very difficult playing against Wayne because he was someone who could shoot lights out. And that was very frustrating. I was uh, a bit skinnier, but to see Wayne in his heyday, that guy could hit shots that I could only dream of hitting. So is that good enough, Wayne? Did, did I suck you off good enough? Yeah, it'll work. Man, you guys are so cute. God. So I'm pretty shocked, though, you know, that that was your basketball jersey. My basketball jersey is it's, it's the legend. It's the man. It's it's Kobe. Uh, I got the 24 purple, and it's, you know, I don't know if I honestly may ever wear it again, to be, to be honest with you. It may just, I may get that one framed up or something or just something cool. I don't know. It, I, I love that thing, and it obviously reminds me of him, and it's still a little salty, but, man, I love that jersey. That's a legendary jersey for sure. Fantastic jersey, and I totally feel the sentiment. Like Anything that has to do with him, it's still hard for me. And I think my wife showed me a poster today, like, hey, look at this poster of Kobe. And it shows the evolution from his rookie year to like his last year. And I'm like, I can't look at that shit right now. Yeah, still very, very much too soon. I did see a funny meme, actually, before we get too far. I did see a funny meme. It was a picture of Kobe Bryant getting out of a DeLorean, and it said, I hope 2021 starts this way. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely, if that could only happen. We're up to me sharing my last jersey, correct? Correct. Yeah. All right. So last but not least, I'm going to go with the one that has the most sentiment, especially now where he no longer plays for my favorite team. And that is my red Patriots Tom Brady jersey. I've always loved to wear that watching him playing games, especially for the Super Bowls. And uh, to see him going and wearing a different version of red and down in Tampa Bay, it's going to be very difficult. I don't know if I'm going to be able to wear this while he's still playing for a different city, but that is my favorite NFL jersey. That's a great jersey. Any Tom Brady jersey is a great jersey. Yeah, he's going to look way better in buck red, though. Pewter goes better with red. Can't wait to get my Sidham jersey. Should be pewter, not pewter. <laughs> So my last jersey is actually another jersey that I frequently wore at the basketball court near our apartment complex, and I wore it until I outgrew it, and I don't mean height-wise. The Duke jersey? Duke number 22, Jay Williams. Yeah. Um, I wore that jersey probably every other time I played basketball because I am a diehard Duke fan. I had white Duke shorts I would wear with it. And actually, another great story about how amazing I was. Uh, there was a guy down at the basketball court one day when I was down there shooting around, and he actually asked me. He saw my shorts, and he goes, oh, is that where you played in college? And I was like, dude, I'm not that good. I appreciate the compliment, though. <laughs> you would be a fucking Duke fan. God, I knew. I just knew I hated you. Um, that, that's pretty good. I mean, I, I don't like Duke at all. They're the one team that I like. Honestly, I just truly have kind of a hatred for. And But you can't hit on it. 
My last jersey's an odd one. You know, it's not going to care much to y'all. It's a Victor Hedman Lightning jersey. Uh, I'm a big Lightning fan. Uh, Victor Hedman's my dude. I love that guy. So uh, that's my last one. Yeah, man, you can wear that while you see them exit the playoffs this year. Yeah, I mean, I'll, we'll see when Victor Hedman lays the motherfucking smackdown. <laughs> well, maybe. I had- and hockey jerseys are super comfortable, too. So The sweaters? Yeah, I love them. I think they're cool as shit. Because, I don't know, I feel like jerseys are a little tacky now. You can't really, like, wear them, like, out to places. I think they're kind of like a little, ooh, if you wear it out now, like, I'll judge you. Other than a game, obviously. But hockey jerseys, I don't know. Like, if it's cold out and you wear a hockey jersey out, I'm like, ah, mad respect. It's just a sweater, man. I remember I ordered some hockey jerseys for some guys, and I had a buddy who wanted a Boston University Jack Eichel jersey. And Oh, that's pretty cool. It was wicked cool. It was the red one, and it came in, and... Yeah. Uh, I handed it to him, and he opens it up, and he starts putting it on, and he goes, dude, this thing has the fight straps in it. I'm like, yeah, it's a legit jersey, dude. I mean, you have to get those. Mine's got that, too. They're, they're important, man. I mean, I, I personally won't buy a jersey that's not an authentic. Like, I hate buying those printed on, like, shits like that. Like, I can't buy a jersey like that. So, I'm down for the for the real jerseys. Cool. Well, that ends... Hey, yo, Kenny. That's you I, over there, man? Why do you fucking jump into it before I say goodbye? I out, always dude? do that. <laughs> 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 All right. We have to say goodbye to people first. <laughs> Man, fuck everybody. <laughs> Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, everybody. I mean, it's true. He's right. Get it, get up on there. So that pretty much wraps up the show. We appreciate you guys joining us and listening either live on the RTF Sports Network or downloading or streaming the episode from one of the popular streaming sites or devices. Definitely appreciate you guys. Te- check out rtfsportsnetwork.com and check out the blog page. There's a ton of them now. We got extra writers on, so they're going to be coming fast and furious. Check out the one that me and Jesse wrote together. There's actually fake sports cards in there, just like the last one I did. So you're actually going to want those cards after you read the article. Yeah, this is a very fun mixed bag of a show. I think it was very nice and refreshing to be able to touch on different sports that are actually coming back soon, sports that we are all very passionate about. So very excited to see these sports in front of our eyes coming soon. Yeah, once again, thank you, everybody. We appreciate you coming on and listening. You know, make sure you rate, review, rtfsportsnetwork.com, Wednesday nights, 9 p.m., iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening on. Get up on there. Leave some comments. Leave some reviews. We appreciate it. We're really excited to have some sports back. Finally, finally, we get some real sports back, and I know everybody's excited, so we can't wait to talk to you next week, guys. Go for it, Premature Dan. Hey, yo, Kenny, that's you over there being an asshole? It's over!